Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-editor of Film Comment. It's January, which means that I am in the snowy streets of Park City, Utah, reporting on this year's Sundance Film Festival. For the next week, I'll be gathering the best critics on the ground here to talk about each day's premieres on the podcast. So stay tuned and also subscribe to the Film Comment Letter to keep up with our dispatchers, interviews and more from this year's Sundance. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast from the Sundance Film Festival. I have been generating podcasts daily with a great crew of critics here on the ground for the last uh, four days. And uh, today is my last night in Park City. And I am closing things out with a wonderful crew of guests in the bar of the Doubletree Hotel. We all have drinks. Uh, We're in a celebratory mood, perhaps. Um, Anyway, if you hear some wild opinions, just know know the setting. And you may also hear some background noise because we are surrounded by a bunch of people enjoying drinks and networking and making deals. Who knows? Um... So, on today's podcast, we have a couple guests that you've heard before on this year's Sundance podcast. First of all, uh, Vadim, who you've been listening to a lot recently. Hi, I'm Vadim Rizov from Filmmaker Magazine. Thank you for listening to me again. God, that's giving me PTSD flashbacks of Love Me, if anyone here has seen it. Unfortunately, I have. (laughs) Oh, you get it. Uh, We have Robert, who was also on the podcast just recently. Hi, I'm Robert Daniels. I'm here with RogerEbert.com, working through my drink on day 5,678 of Sundance. And uh, debutante, I mean, not on the Film Comment podcast ever, but at the Sundance um, podcasts. Yeah, or at least in recent years. This is Monica Castillo. I'm the senior film programmer at the Jacob Burns Film Center, as well as a contributing critic to RogerEbert.com. Wonderful. Thank you all for joining me. I know all three of you saw a movie today, and I thought we could start with that one. It's uh, a movie called Devo. Uh, Monica, do you want to introduce it a little bit? Sure. It's a pretty straightforward biodoc about the band Devo um, with really great archival footage, great interviews. Overall, I thought it was a lot of fun. It's very solid. I don't know that it stands out in you know the field that's quite crowded already with really good bio or docs or not really bio docs, but musical documentaries. Um, I, sh- I should say more musical documentary than bio doc. Um, but yeah, I, it was okay. I had a good time. I don't know. What are you thinking, Robert? <laughs> um, yeah, this is directed by Chris Smith, um, who has been kind of known for these kind of like very approachable documentaries on these kind of subjects. Like he has like the wham documentary on Netflix, um, which I think this is better than um, the Wham documentary. I think is like pretty like by the numbers, and not sure he does much with the archival footage he does have. This one feels 
a bit looser. I think I think really understands like the politics of the band and like the um their ethos right as just not just like musicians but as performance artists um and so i think it's like really brisk and swift in the way that it kind of like challenges or channels um you know their ethos um i i guess the the one big issue i have of course with all these like musical bio docs um is because you have you're working in close contact with the subject it feels like there's not as much pushback against the subject especially with devo like there i think there's a like interesting like tangent that could be done about um like what does it mean to like sell out right and i think some people like if you look at like the success of like whip it right and what they did afterwards and the kind of appearances they made on like the merv griffin show and stuff like that that you would be like oh there's a bit of selloutism in here um but of course, their narrative through Devo is that, oh, no, this was all part of our plan. We, this is like really like we predicted that this would happen. And I think like a like more forceful documentarian would have like challenged that. And I think we might have gotten somewhere a little bit more interesting than like just kind of like a repetition of like who they are as artists. So, I mean, and it is literally they are the Devo's corporate publishing entity is one of the production companies on this. Sure is. Um, I so this I think this is a good example of a, of a movie that uh well while just okay is remarkably handy if you're writing Sundance dispatches because metaphorically it works very well with what's going on here. Chris Smith was once actually best known for making the movie American Movie. Um, years passed, other things happened, uh, less successful films, and when he returned, it was yeah kind of cranking out these um these populist documentaries, and I kind of dig his um thing. You know, I watched the the Jim Carrey Andy Kaufman one which was interesting the fire festival one and i actually like the wham one more so i find myself watching chris smith um by the numbers docs because he's just kind of good at it so like i don't know if you guys were actually diva enthusiasts before you saw this i was not i kind of always knew who they were obviously but i just like took a few weeks to listen to like the first three albums just to kind of get ramped up for this um which i guess kind of paid off but the movie is about you know, first you get radicalized and then you professionalize, which probably means selling out. Um, and of course, if you are going to get into like the ethos of the Sundance Film Festival and what that means for the normalization of independent film as a business model, analogous to the way that uh, Sirius has an indie FM satellite station, you know, that sounds like nothing like indie rock from the 90s. That will be uh, something I will be heavily leaning upon up in, in my final to-be-written festival dispatch. There you go. <laughs> um, but even setting all that stuff aside, uh, you know, there's some pretty clear reasons why it would be a good fit for this year's festival, right? Diva has just restored their entire back catalog of short films, yeah. which will be uh, premiering at MoMA this week. Yes, uh, and as are, part of uh, To Save and Project. They are, they are playing here. They played here today. Uh, mm -hmm. They played at the uh, Music Lounge at 5.30, and they'll be playing a private party uh, later tonight. And um, they were here at the festival for some reason in 1996 when they did their first reunion oh. or something like that, which I'm surprised that the festival didn't do more to trumpet since it's their 40th anniversary, and that would play nicely into their narrative. Anyway, so you can do stuff with this movie. It's just none of it's going to happen while you're watching it. <laughs> sure. I mean, I did. So I, to that point, I was I knew their music, also wasn't much of a fan, but... You know, I grew a little bit of appreciation of like the politics behind it, the sort of performance art aspect of it, you know, not knowing what their early days before the, you know, music video era was or what that looked like. That's so fascinating to see. 
Um, and they had a you know a ton of great archival footage of those like early days going up through the ranks. And then yeah, I did feel a little unsatisfied towards the end because it's like, it's just like it just peters off in a way. It is it is also a little bit depressing to hear Mark Mothersbaugh, one of the the main diva members who I think we all we're probably of the same age group to kind of know in the back of our heads, oh, the guy who wrote the Rugrats theme. Yes. Um, and, <laughs> That's and, how I introduced and, him to and, someone. <laughs> and, to know, and to know that he has gone on to be a pretty big entity in that world, which is, and there's no shame in that, but then to hear him kind of be like, but it was rebellious because I snuck in these like, you know, little technical devices and like, if you play it back, you know, like, we all would like to pretend that, but you know, it's not a very plausible stance. And again, yeah. it is kind of like, how do you sell out while pretending to yourself that you haven't within the context of an officially authorized biography? It's like, yeah, well, it's not much yeah. to be done there. It's also very interesting to see this film because, of course, Eno is also in the lineup as well. And Eno has a tangential role. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, that reminds me that there was there's another major music kind of bio doc, Eno. And I was. Uh, curious if people here had seen it. And oh, yes. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. I'm a big fan of it. It was my first screening here, and it's probably my favorite screening of the festival. Um, it's really interesting what they do there. I don't know if you've discussed it before. Great. Uh, so it's kind of a generative documentary, and what that means is they wrote a program that will insert different scenes at different points, maybe even the sequences within the movie itself get switched around. There are fixed points within the film that will always play in every sequence, but no, supposedly, no two versions of the documentary are going to be the same. So, you know, I, I've talked about it with a few people. I'm curious to see what other sequences comes up because um, there's aspects of the career, his career, Eno, Brian Eno's career, that does not come up uh, in every single version. So it does reward repeated viewings. But I think it's a really good match of the kind of musician that Brian Eno has become, working with loops and, you know, even generative music. And like he kind of demonstrates some of that within the film itself and the format itself. It doesn't feel like a gimmick. It does feel like a very perfect marriage of format and subject and director. Yeah, the, um, Monica and I saw it at the same screening. It was both our first films of Sundance. Um, and I, it's still one of my favorites. I, you know, um, it's interesting to think about like so many music biodocs. Like there is, a, of course, this control that's happening from the subject, and here is like there's like no control. It's actually, in fact, that's exactly what Eno wants is like for him not to be able to control his own story to have like some kind of like third party, you know, like arranging it. And I think the editing in it is so fascinating. I mean, definitely there are some cuts that um, aren't what you expect, but um. But the cuts, like the because they're so unexpected, um, you don't get like this kind of like sense that you you ever like have a feel for what's going to. It doesn't be, ever become predictable. Is I guess what I'm saying. Um, yeah, it doesn't follow like a linear timeline. Yeah, it's not chronological at all. You know, and um, sometimes the editing's on the nose, right? Like. You know, mentions a dog. Cut to a dog. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I have complained about this uh, on the podcast we did together, Robert. But like the stereotypical doc editing that is so visible at a festival like Sundance just drives me crazy. Like it's so literal and denotative. You know, yeah, it is really like talk about this. Cut to that, like, or um, I was I was talking I was complaining about the Richard Linklater the first episode of the L Richard Linklater doc, which I think is so. I found it like very fascinating and moving, but the editing just uh, annoys me so much. That happens a lot in the Frida documentary as well. There's like where she talks about being in agony, and there's a like a zoomed in 
picture, one of her paintings and then there are tears streaming down her face. It's like, oh, yeah, I get it. She's in agony. She said as much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think like a good, I mean, any good edit, like any good cut should reveal more about the subject, not just kind of like repeat what you already know. Um, and I think the the edits are really great and, you know, are ones that reveal more about him in, in a way that is surprising. And I I think probably when he watched it or one of the versions he watched, whatever, <laughs> I think they said it's like 42, like, like quintillion or so, quinti- oh, like, God, so yeah. like versions that, could, that are possible. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he must have been like, whoa, like this is, this is like, is revealing something about my own process that I didn't realize my own ethos that I didn't realize. And I think it's a, the, at least the version we saw, um, I think it balances well the big kind of like, you know, like, oh, Bowie and um, talking, heads. talking Heads. And then, like, I think kind of like the softer, quieter moments with them, too. I think it's, it's it was it was incredibly effective. And um, I'm, I'm interested in where, if any other documentarians follow suit. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking it would, I would love to see my life, like, algorithmically rearrange and see what new patterns emerge to make meaning of it. Like, it just sounds like, for audience, it's fun, but... As the subject, like just going off of what you were saying, Robert, that Eno might, you know, gain something new from watching his life this way. If anyone wants to do that with my life, just letting <laughs> you know I'm available. Um, so t- talking about documentaries, uh, another documentary that I think the three of us have seen is Power by Yancey Ford, uh, who is known for Strong Island. And this is a film I was really looking forward to because I very much liked Strong Island, uh, Power I got to say, uh, the the synopsis did sort of make me a little tired because uh, documentaries about police brutality, I mean, this has become a churning industry in the last few years. Um, but, you know, it, it I think it's interesting in its own ways and specific in its own ways. It's very much traditional, yeah, like a very traditional documentary. Uh, it's composed of talking head footage, talking head interviews with a whole range of academics and journalists and researchers. I will say that the choice of the commentators is great. I mean, there are some scholars that I really follow, like Nikhil Pal Singh, uh, who is included in it. Uh, they, I think they're all so eloquent and are able to distill complex ideas about policing uh, in such an accessible and interesting way that I thought that that was very meaningful. And that is cut through with archival footage uh, of, you know, the various sort of origin sites of policing as it is described in the film. So uh, slave patrols, you know, lynchings, um, you know, police, sort of like early versions of police who basically were tasked with keeping the working class under the unpropertied classes under control. Um, so And the frontiers, you know, the frontier policing, the violence of the frontier, the violence of... Uh, against indigenous people. Against indigenous people, exactly. So it all kind of um, makes, I guess, is supposed to make this point that policing is ultimately about power. I do think that it feels more like a moving image textbook. Like it feels like a very basic primer told using moving images and, and sound bites as opposed to really using the cinematic medium to drive home something about policing. The film also feels very similar to Riotsville, 
which was at Sundance last year, directed by Sierra Pettengill. It, that one is different because it's a lot more poetic and has a lot of voiceover. This has very little voiceover, and I think it could have lost the voiceover. Right. Um, but, you know, it touches upon some similar themes. The Kerner Commission comes up. And I kept thinking of, I don't know if you guys saw this documentary, Monopoly of Violence by David Dufresne. It was a French documentary. It was in the New York Film Festival in 2020. Yeah, a few years ago. And it was just fantastic, completely different premise, but basically it brought together a bunch of victims of police brutality, scholars, politicians, and actually a couple cops to watch footage of police brutality and riots, uh, especially against the yellow vests in France, and just have conversations. And it wasn't some like, like, let's all talk and figure it out through dialogue. I mean, it, it's, it's very emotional the conversations are very direct. The cop has to talk with like the family, the victims and families of victims of police brutality and watch, you know, what the police has done. And they kind of, you know, they just kind of go at him. And um, I don't know. It's like with all these other examples, power just uh, didn't didn't come off as anything special or exceptional or using, again, the cinematic medium in any specific way. But I don't know if you guys had... Any other thoughts? I mean, it's funny that you mentioned, like, it's set up like a textbook. I mean, there are literally chapters throughout the film itself. Uh, and that breaks up the flow of, you know, the movie, the momentum that it's building towards. Um, I really enjoyed Riotsville. I also really enjoyed Monopoly of Violence. I think it's great as an addition to, you know, that genre and then looking at that topic specifically. But I don't know that it would, you know, define it or, like, be, like the number one title that I would recommend for people trying to understand what's going on. Oh, okay. I, it wouldn't be in my top ten. Yeah. <laughs> like, it would be. I mean, I think it's... I'm so disappointed by this film. Mm. I'm like... I think it's... I, I mean, I think I could call it average, but I think that would actually be like a compliment to it. I think the edit is terrible. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the chapter... T- the Netflixified... Uh, of the Netflixification of this documentary, adding these chapter titles, there's like how many, like eight, nine, ten of them. Like I lost count. Yeah. I was trying to count at the beginning, and I actually lost count. Like, and then there's random words. Sometimes it's one word. Sometimes it's a phrase. Yeah. And then randomly, the voiceover comes in with some sort of semi-poetic quote. You know, I mean, I think I agree with you. It's a little bit of a mess structurally. Yeah. And yeah. it's so. I think it's repetitive in the footage that it's using i think it's repetitive in the points that it's making i don't think it's going down any unique avenues even when we follow this police officer who's based in minnesota who's like i think a um one district away from like where george floyd um died um i mean he could have been the documentary by himself yeah he could have been the documentary by himself and yet we don't there's nothing there right like, there's just there's just nothing there she's just she, it's as um it's as though he thinks that like just by pointing the camera at this cop that he'll gleam something interesting and it's like well no you're just pointing a camera at a cop so uh, i i don't know what the point of this documentary is to be quite honest <laughs> yeah i um i feel the same way and i i don't know maybe there was some i wonder if the production was particularly challenging or something because again strong island i think is a very strong film uh and this one doesn't seem to have <laughs> yes they, they didn't call it weak <laughs> no, they, they did not. the punter strikes again i guess um 
it just feels like this film doesn't have a vision. Like it doesn't have a di- the directorial touch. It just feels so generic and yeah. yeah. Well, it, I always wonder, of course, like whenever someone has a documentary as personal as Strong Island was for Ford, right? And then when they move on to another subject that is like, I guess, more broad, like how do they kind of get into the subject matter? Do they kind of have the same like distinct, like do they have the same precision in their vision? Um, and like, I just didn't see it here. You know, I, I, I feel like I would, I rather than keep making these Netflix, you know, these Netflix documentaries, go back to something that is really personal to you. And like, maybe, maybe Ford is one of those directors who they have to be kind of like the center in terms of like how they're like approaching the story as opposed to like on the periphery. Um, another documentary I'm actually really curious about, haven't caught up with it yet, is Soundtrack of a Coup d'etat. Uh, which is, you know, I, this festival often has a lot of political documentaries and it's, it seemed to me like uh, one of the more interesting ones. But Vadim, Robert, you guys have seen it. Uh, soundtrack to Coup d'etat, uh, Truth in Advertising. Uh, the movie has two strands. One part is the Coup d'etat, specifically the assassination of uh, Patrice Lumumba. Uh, and while uh, the, the, one of the one of the movies, the, uh, the, the director claims that he spent eight years researching it, which I absolutely believe. And because he is Belgian, he is drawing upon recent Belgian primary sources and and new history history books, as well as like things that we've come to expect. The other part of it, the soundtrack part of it, is the relationship of American jazz musicians to the political history of the time, both directly and just how they interacted with the civil rights movement in the states. Um, it is um, an information-dense film. Every quote that you see is on screen as a title card, but also with the citation of the author, the text or paper that it comes from, the page number. Um, it's all there. And um, I think also, I, I have to say that I have never uh, done the reading or the homework on uh, Lumumba in a general sense. I have not seen the movie Lumumba. I have not done the reading otherwise. And so... I have to chime in here. I am obsessed with Patrice Lumumba. So I have seen Raoul Peck's documentary Lumumba. I've seen the fictional Lumumba. And I just wanted to chime in with one thing, which is that recently I learned that Suleiman Sisse decided to become a filmmaker after he saw a new the, a newsreel of Lumumba's assassination in a student film club. And he was like, I'm going to make movies about colonialism. I just felt the need to interject that, interject that, uh, but carry on, Vadim. And I'm, I'm better educated, which as I should have been all along. Uh, I, th- I think I'm actually like a little bit more qualified because I was just like, what this movie actually needs is an evaluation from a historian who can really get into the finer points. Because, for example, one of the argumentative lines of the movie is basically that we have underrated Nikita Khrushchev, in part because he introduced uh, a resolution into the United Nations against colonialism, which while failing... Um, then led like the newly like liberated countries to introduce the resolution to have it pass. And I was like, you know, to me, I was just like, well, I don't know. Like, was he sincere? Does it matter? Was the resolution meaningful? You know, like all of these things are very opaque to me. I know a little bit more about the jazz side. And I, I, I feel like the one thing I can contribute here is that, you know, historically how Louis Armstrong is perceived, especially in his presentation and his political self-awareness is kind of a contentious subject that in recent years he's... um. I've been more reevaluated as a whole as a, as a more savvy and self-aware operator and not so much the kind of like grinning sellout that he was often caricatured as. And I do think on that specific front, this movie is like, 
pretty right on, right? Like he definitely gets a, a properly, a, a roundly uh, treated on this. But it's um, the jazz component. There's a lot of it. They cover um, Thelonious Monk, the Archie Shep, uh, you know, and all the way over to like Renette Coleman. Like they really cover everything that from like traditionalist jazz to like free jazz of the late sixties. Um, so that part, I'm just like right on. And in general, that's a lot of research. It's, I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I was impressed by the jazz component as well. I was thinking about, um, and I think I'd mentioned like in when we talked about um, Color Purple a few podcasts ago, um, Arthur Knight's Disintegrating the Musical, and um, um, where he writes about like the black cast musicals of like the uh, the 1950s and the um, 60s. Um, and how he makes reference to W.E.B. Du Bois, who talks about black music as like the great export of America, right? Um, and not just the great export of America, but also a gift of blackness, right? That is like really kind of tells the story of how blackness moves to the world. Um, and I thought that this documentary took an interesting like angle on that, right? Where we see like Louis Armstrong and many of the jazz musicians like are, you know, uh, like um my blank out right now being somewhat duped right into like representing like you know like the um the CIA and stuff like that in and these countries abroad right um and there are like other instances of this of like Josephine Baker falling like prey to this as well um um I don't think it's mentioned in this film but like it's been like at least noted in research and and, and other sources um but I think like the showing the savviness as you mentioned um about Louis Armstrong I think really there has been a reevaluation of him as an artist. I think there's been a reevaluation of many kind of like black artists of that era particularly like actors right who like whether there's like step and fetch it you know who um it's a question of were they just kind of like playing stereotypes for personal profit or were they doing something far more subversive? Um, and I think this film is very much interested in that with these jazz musicians um, and thinking about, um, once again, like um, the era in which they're living in, right, where they you have like rampant racism, um, you have separate but equal, um, and yet they're still willing to kind of go out, represent their country, um, believing that in a sense that not just that they're representing their country, but they're also representing their art form, they're representing their race, and then how this gets undermined. Um, and I think the way that it connects that to the actual coup d'etat itself um, is is very fascinating. Um, and um, I have seen Lumumba, the <laughs> Rahu Peck. <laughs> yes, it's, it's amazing. Um, Rahu Peck's amazing. So my, uh, my question is, if you are not like me and you're a well-informed person, is the movie still like revelatory in any way about like Lumumba in a big sense and like what you thought you knew about the, the assassination in the particulars because a lot of the research is specifically about the Belgian aspect of it and that um, that minister Spock but I don't know how much that changes what you thought you knew or if it was just like more shading and detail where previously there was less of it yeah I mean I think there's definitely more shading and detail in this I mean I think it works well as a companion piece if, if you know to to anything that you already know on the subject Um and doing it from the Belgian kind of like perspective, I think I, the whole time I was watching this, I couldn't like 
I'm trying to remember this document, a cold case hammer shot, like which is kind of cold like case hammer schuld, yeah, yes, <laughs> Schultz? Yeah, Schultz. something like that, yes, <laughs> yeah, which is funny because it's also a kind of investigation of a of a conspiracy theory and assassination of a figure who in this movie is pretty much denounced roundly from beginning to end. Yeah, but of course, if you see that documentary, like there's a completely different like. Um, uh, evaluation of him as as a political figure, you know, like oh, he actually had his you know heart in the right place, and he was he was assassinated po- possibly because he was going to like switch sides, and we get no indication of that in this film, <laughs> like none at all. <laughs> well, I you guys have sold me on this film so hard. This is Devika Kaur features Lumumba and citations. I am in, <laughs> but. Uh, I, I would love to talk about another documentary, uh, very different from you know the ones we've been talking about, uh, called Union by Brett Story and Stephen Mang. It is about the Amazon labor union, the kind of grassroots worker-led union that formed at JFK 8, the Amazon warehouse in Staten Island in New York City that won the first ever union election at a, at an Amazon warehouse, um, you know, in the country in 2020, uh, 2022. And the film kind of, I believe, starts in 2021 and sort of follows the organizers on their journey to that victory and then stays with them for a little while after. Um, few reasons why I found it striking. One, like I was saying, many of the documentaries we've been seeing here have been fairly traditional in their editing and their form. And this, I wouldn't say this is necessarily completely novel. You know, this is still in the festival documentary sort of format, but it took a lot, it took a much more poetic kind of approach, especially the editing. Um, You know, there's this beautiful motif where there's some kind of horizontal movement in the frame. Often it's a ship, sometimes it's a line of people. And that cues like intertitles. That's when text appears uh, on screen. And so there's moments like that. And frankly, um, this movie like made me cry a lot because what it really captures more than more than like some story of victory and you know, more than this sort of like narrative arc is how how hard it is to organize against a really big machine on a grassroots level, how much interpersonal relationships come into play in that process, and how hard it is to maintain morale and fight for an alternative that you know isn't perfect, but you know that what exists at the moment has to go. You know that this is not good enough and we don't know if the new thing is going to be the perfect thing but we got to start somewhere and it takes this like great leap of faith and commitment and integrity and uh, Brett actually did a panel uh, with Film Comment last year in August Um, we had a a series we showed a series of shorts from the New York Public Library archival shorts about labor and labor organizing and she kind of at the time she was still finishing the film And I remember her saying like one of the things she was struggling with is on the one hand, she doesn't want to make a dispiriting film. She wants to make a film that gives viewers a sense of victory, a sense of possibility that the labor movement can win. At the same time, she doesn't want to make an untrue picture of the fact that labor organizing is a very flawed 
can be very flawed. Unions can be very flawed. There can be a lot of dynamics of race and leadership and gender within these, you know, and sometimes the union isn't the perfect alternative either. And I saw that struggle while watching the film. I saw that struggle of wanting to capture the victory, but also wanting to convey the imperfectness of this process. And as someone who has been part of, you know, organizing a union ad film at Lincoln Center, and obviously on a much, much smaller scale, I mean, I think unionizing against Amazon is insanely hard as we see in the film. They have, they pay thousands of dollars every day to union busters. They have a powerful legal team. They replace their workers. Like they have a 150% rate of turnover. I mean, obviously what I experienced was on a much smaller scale, but I, I felt the emotions, you know, that are portrayed in the film. How much, yeah, how much faith you need to have to believe in the big, the long-term goal while you're fighting for the short-term goal. And so... Yeah. I'm shaking my head a lot because I agree with much of this. I've also been a part of a union drive. It is hard work. They show that grind. They show how difficult it is, how emotional it is. I also got emotional in, in various parts of the film because it's not, you know, one thing that leads you to try and do this impossible thing. It's multiple reasons why you're on the line, why you're talking to people face to face and doing this uncomfortable, weird conversations of like, hey, you know, we could have a better workplace and we could do these things. Um, that was really good. And I'm really glad they captured it. And they really, I was impressed with how far they got into Amazon property at all. I'm really impressed that they just didn't get bounced the moment they set foot in the parking lot. But my one critique of the film would be is I don't think the story is finished. And that was my biggest thing. This, their stories. I don't know that it's ready to be told in that documentary format. It is like, it almost feels like a news like update. And it's really in-depth and it's really, you know, great in the way that you follow different characters and how uh, their opinions change over the course of time. But I don't feel like it was a complete package in that way. I have the same critique. I actually feel like the following kind of this chronological arc was maybe a, not the best choice. Because you sort of end up like there's kind of a false ending with the victory and then the film has a series of sequences kind of very quickly trying to show that the story isn't over. They have to fight more battles. There's Set other backs. elections. Exactly. Yeah. And I did, and I was saying this actually to Vadim and some people last night that the ALU victory is also so, and the whole struggle is so recent. It's 2022. Chris Small obviously features very heavily in the film. He's the president of the ALU. He has been in the media so much that it does rob the film of a certain feeling of revelation. And I almost wondered if they could have started with the victory and somehow like worked backwards or forwards. You know, I don't know. I mean, look, making a subject on this film is hard. And I know, you know, the filmmakers to be real allies of the movement. So I, you know, as, but I agree with you that there's something, it just, it, it felt like a really unfinished story and I felt like the film makers knew that and sort of didn't really know how to grapple with that. Yeah. It's, it's timely, so that's why it's coming out. It does provide some insight, especially for folks who have never union organizer still maybe have negative feelings about unions and getting to hear people's stories of just like why they want change. Yeah. Great. And that's effective, but... I think there's there's a part two to be made. 
I agree. And um, maybe there's a whole series to be made because you know what? This um, That's the nature of this movement. And until we win the class war, uh, we, we're going to keep telling the story. To move away from documentaries, because that's all we've been talking about on this episode, I want to talk about one of my favorite films of the festival, Kneecap, which I know Robert has seen. Oh my God, I saw it today and I'm obsessed. It is so fun and it is so smart and it just filled me with all this like radical, anti-imperial, anti-cop energy. Robert, do you want to describe it and introduce it a bit? Yeah, so it's, you know, set in post-Troubles Belfast, um, and it's about, um, I guess, like, two kind of, like, street punks, right, who, um, with a local teacher who also doubles as a DJ, forms a <laughs> Irish rap trio, um, and then uses the Irish language to, uh, um, like, defy authority who, um, the colonials authority that is um trying to stamp them out and um and fassbender's in it as a um michael fassbender yes (laughs) yes (laughs) michael fassbender's in it um as a um um one of the fathers of of, uh, uh, the father of one of the um um the rappers and um he's really fantastic as this like revolutionary who's like faked his own death and believes that by faking his own death he's like getting it over on like the authorities um and yeah i mean this is just like i think an incredibly like bold and rebellious film um it reminded me quite a bit of the harder they come um in the same way that film uses um reggae and like is looking at um jamaica in a post-colonialist lens right and seeing how like reggae as, as an art form can be freeing right um, and giving, you know, can, can give an identity, right, to this place that seemingly before um, not necessarily had none, but their identity had been stamped out, you know, or reduced. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this is one of my favorite films of the festival. I just think it's, like, just so, like, bold and invigorating and, and funny, like, really funny at times. It's so funny. It so And to give more context, you know, it's they rap in Gaelic, which in the north of Ireland, which I learned... Not Northern Ireland. Republicans believe it should be north of Ireland. Um, It's a very small population that still speaks that language because that language has been really stamped out by the British Empire over over history. And so I loved this idea of this kind of like linguistic war of which this rap group becomes like, you know, the leading soldiers. And I will say a, a couple things, you know, the the trio the kneecap team showed up to the daily vigils for Palestine that are being held on mainstream organized by the coalition film workers for Palestine and they showed up there you know wearing the balaclava and with a Palestine flag and posters and in the film you see these there's a funeral where you see men wearing kafias and you see you know in an apartment complex there's Irish flags and there's a Palestine flag. And, you know, late in the film, they kind of talk about why hip hop is an important mode to them because of the way black people used it in America. And so it really has these like such great gestures of international solidarity. And what I really love is like, obviously, the bad guys are the British cops, the RUC, the peelers, as they call them. But there's also this conflict in the film between the these rappers who, by the way, are just like robbers and druggies. 
uh, and they just are like constantly giving out drugs. And between them and a group of Republicans who are politically on their side, but believe in like no drugs, like, you know, we need to like keep this movement like pure. And the film actually becomes a very interesting movie about respectability politics too, right? And like this group, and there's a conflict between Michael Fassbender, who's a used to be an IRA fighter, and he's like sort of hiding for most of the film. It's a very funny little track. And it's this older generation of IRA fighters who are like, these kids with their profanity and their drugs are kind of ruining this movement. And these kids saying, we don't need to be upstanding. We don't need to be noble in order to fight for this cause. We're going to do it our way. So it just is very, and it's so irreverent. I mean, there's this whole track about one of the rappers and how he only gets off when he's like having sex with like British women and like <laughs> has to kind of enact this weird little like anti-colonial fetish way. And you know, there's it's complicated. It's complicated when there's gender involved and all of this is done with just like so much fun. Um, I was really, it was such a blast of energy. This film, of course, is very aware of like how the revolution that they're trying to enact, right? Mirrors revolutions that have happened in other countries. And I think the respectability politics component of this is very interesting. I mean, of course, like we can see it like in America, right? When like the hip hop generation was coming up and then you had like people like Jesse Jackson, right? Who are part of that older generation who <laughs> definitely, you know, weren't, weren't on the, weren't on the, uh, we're definitely like pull up your pants. Um, um, and so, yeah, we, we see this like in America, right? With, in the rise with, of hip hop, right? And how like this previous civil rights generation had kind of reacted against it. Um, and like, of course, the civil rights generation have, you know, that kind of followed decades of reactions, right? They reacted against, like, the Black Power movement, and then they, you know, later um, reacted against hip-hop and, like, the image that it casts, right? Whether it's, you know, the profanity, um, whether it's, like, the um, the sex on display or, um, or like, stuff like, you know, pull up your pants, right? And the idea that, like, oh, in order to gain some kind of freedom, you must first play by the rules of the oppressor, Um and these um, hip hop artists in kneecap, of course, and this generation that they're representing is pushing totally against that. And um, it, uh, yeah, I found it very, very fascinating that the parallels that it was striking with these different kind of like revolutionary movements in these different countries. I also want to point out, while I have not seen this movie, this is an excellent time to say, if you're watching this at some point in the future, and this sounds good, you should also be watching The Black and the Green by St. Clair Bourne, another model of intersectional solidarity between black civil rights activists and Irish people who really idolize them. Absolutely. Um, I think that's, we're through kind of the, the agenda of this podcast. Um, this is the last podcast that we're doing from Sundance. So uh, open floor for any shout outs, any quick last words. Um, Obviously, really loved the Eno doc. I also really loved, love, love, loved. Uh, I saw the TV glow. And uh, love lives bleeding. Is uh, I I found a few gems among all the titles I, I went through in the last couple days. My big one is is Tenderberry. It's part of like the next competition. I think it's a film that is probably might fly under the radar with like these bigger films. It might I think gain some steam in the second half of the festival when like people are able to kind of like look around a bit. Um, but it's directed by Haley Elizabeth Anderson, who I've loved um, since her short Pillars played at Sundance in 2020. Um, it's a short that I think is presently on Criterion Channel. Um, 
And um, it's about this young woman who is in New York um, with her boyfriend and her boyfriend ends up going back home to, to Ukraine to care for his ailing father. And then the Ukrainian war breaks out. Now she's alone in the city and she's, I think, really grappling with that loneliness and not having that sense of community and family. And I think the way that this film uses found footage is incredibly fantastic. It's a found, it's a film very much based on montages, which usually I'm kind of wary of, but like the way that she does is so like invigorating. And it, and I think it gains greater strength with every single time that she does it. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of like the, has like that energy that I think like, Sundance always like struggles to have right at least presently um is like a true independent voice that's doing something truly interesting with the form Vadim um my two favorite films of the festival a different man and between the temples and I know it's very easy to be like how convenient for me that my two favorite films of the festival are made by New Yorkers that I know and shot on 16 millimeter that's just great for everybody but it's true I also just want to point out this is the 40th anniversary of the festival. The festival has had a lot of kind of signage all over the place, drawing attention to that. There have been, um, before many screenings, there has been this slideshow of, of, of photos taken at the festival over the year. And at the um, at the Ray Theater, there are these wall placards that kind of uh, select from like six years at a time the most notable films that have showed over that, um, over that period. And um, without wishing to be especially unkind and certainly without saying anything particularly original um at 40 the stock taking kind of forces you to conclude as you watch the the change from i don't know like david lynch or like the surprise of jackie chan to like a very corporate photo of you two sitting in a front row in 3d glasses that um it, it is always a good time for stock taking of what the sundance film festival is at the 40th anniversary and what its implications are for the broader independent film landscape now more than ever Nothing says Sundance more than a shot of Steph Curry. Um. <laughs> Can always trust Vadim to have some some comments on the paraphernalia uh, of the festivals uh, at TIFF. Uh, you can trust, yeah, yeah. You can trust on him to uh, comment on the ads uh, at the sponsor videos. I um, I feel like I've talked about all my films, like all the films I've seen on the podcast, but. Uh, one film that actually isn't that actually premiered a long time ago, Mother of All Lies by Asma El Mudir. It premiered at Cannes last year, so it's having this uh, very, I think, prolonged, uh, you know, run. And I'm I'm happy that it is, honestly, because I think it's an absolute gem. It's this fantastic film about a Moroccan woman who is uncovering some trauma in her family, some political and familial trauma, by sort of involving her family in this puppet theater production with like these hand um with these little like kind of clay models of the family and their home that are really like beautifully handcrafted and a central sort of theme of the film is that her grandmother never allowed the the family to take photos she said taking a photograph of yourself was haram and so they she never took a photo until she was like I think a teenager and she actually snuck out of the house at night and went to a sort of a fair, uh, a, a sort of fair, like some kind of religious uh, festival where there was a photo booth. And that was the first photo she had of herself. So it's her unraveling that and unraveling everything that kind of went into that central lie. And it's just, it's so beautiful. And to me, it's just amazing, first of all, that she got her family to sit down and participate in this like 
puppet production, but it's it's a really I thought it it was a really visionary film. And again, I've been talking about being a little tired of the documentary form, and this is one that really takes a totally original approach to that. So I'll just give that a shout out, even though that's not a Sundance premiere that people seek that one out. It deserves its shout out. It's I I love that film. I love how she uses miniatures in it and how she plays with memory. It's I've I've been on a kick of like films that have been playing with like memory and place lately. Um and they're like a been like there's been like a run of them. Like Tenderberry does that a little bit and um um Alderate Roads does that too and um Alder Roads Taste Assault. Um and yeah I, I think the way that she like presents memory through the miniatures is is so fascinating. I, I don't think I've seen any a documentary like it. All right y'all we're done. Our drinks are done. The final podcast is done. Our time at Sundance is more or less done. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Debbie, for having us. <laughs> the Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. 